0: If you have your Bible out, open it to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. It's where we will be this morning. We began our series in Proverbs three months ago, and every Sunday since then, we've opened our Bibles and listened to the words of this writer as he instructs his son. So that his son might grow in wisdom and understanding. The premise of the book is enticing. For those who would heed what is written in this book, they can understand the wisdom of God himself and live a life that's pleasing to the Lord and flourishes in righteousness. But as we've gone through this book, we've seen that Proverbs doesn't offer some sort of formulaic guide for life, where if you follow steps A and B, you can be certain of result C. Instead, it presents a framework of righteous living, where a person learns to esteem the things that God finds valuable and denounce the things he finds detestable. Proverbs makes God's wisdom plain for all to see so that the one who walks in it might have an abundant life. It will still be a life lived in a sinful world, so it will have its share of difficulty, strife, sorrow. But in the midst of a broken world, the wisdom of God offers yet a joyful and abundant life. However, there is an obstacle that stands in the way of this kind of living. It's brought up over and over again throughout the book, both explicitly but also implicitly in the way that the writer writes. This obstacle is pride. At the beginning of the book of Proverbs, Solomon clearly states what is required of the reader Proverbs 1 7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The one who wants to grow in wisdom must fear the Lord. That is to say, you have to respect and revere God and what he says more than you respect and revere what you already think. If you're unable to admit that you don't have wisdom, that you're lacking in understanding, then you will never stop and listen to what God says. Ray Ortland, a pastor in Tennessee, reflects on Proverbs and says this, This book never stops begging us to keep learning. How can we grow in wisdom unless we are teachable? How can we change unless we are open to change? That upward growth trajectory requires humility. So we have this book that's ready to give us God's wisdom. But a roadblock stands in the way that will keep us from walking in that wisdom and understanding and enjoying the life that God offers to any who would follow him. That roadblock is our own arrogance. So this morning, we'll look at the roadblock of pride. We'll try to understand where it comes from, what it leads to, and what the alternatives are so that we might be able to, as we finish out our time in Proverbs, truly listen and understand this book and learn to walk in what God has said So before we dive into our passage, would you bow your head and pray with me? Father, I ask that in our time this morning in your word, you would open up our ears and our eyes that we might understand in our minds and our hearts what it is you have spoken through the book of Proverbs. I ask that we would be receptive to your teaching That it would undo assumptions and beliefs that we have held that run contrary to your word. That as we leave this room, what would be magnified in our mind is the things you have spoken and nothing else. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the writer of Proverbs warns of the danger of pride at several points in this book. Several points explicitly, but then again, all throughout in the way that he gives this wisdom. But at several different points, we run up against pride. In Proverbs 8, the writer tells us that pride and arrogance are hated by God. Strong language. God doesn't just dislike pride and arrogance. He hates them. In Proverbs 11, we see that pride precedes disgrace. The one who wants to walk in pride will eventually be met with disgrace. In Proverbs 29, we see that pride will bring one low, ultimately. And the word pride that this writer uses has the idea of something high and elevated, someone who believes themselves to be high and elevated. And he says someone who thinks themselves so highly will ultimately, in reality, be brought low. Perhaps the most well-known of the warnings against pride is our starting passage for this morning. So if you have your Bible open to Proverbs 16, we will start in verse 18. Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The one who is proud won't get to experience the flourishing, abundant life that Proverbs has alluded to. In fact, it's the very opposite. The proud person will end in disaster. Here we're warned that pride precedes destruction. It doesn't precede abundance or flourishing. It doesn't precede... Happiness or satisfaction it precedes destruction so the one who would walk in pride ultimately will be met with destruction and ruin that though they might think highly of themselves and esteem themselves very well ultimately they will be brought low and humbled so why does that matter for us this morning because we are all to one extent or another prideful people all of us I know that's possibly an insulting claim. You walked into a room this morning and then someone got up on a stage and said you are a prideful person. And I mean that. Every last one of you are a prideful person in one measure or another. And myself is included in that statement. And I believe that we can make that argument from the Bible. So it's not just my own thinking that you're a prideful person, that's also God's thinking of who you were as well. So every person in this room is to one degree or another proud in our thinking and in our living, and that pride will ultimately become a destructive obstacle if we try to follow God, and it must be addressed. I think we'll see that in God's Word, but I also think that God's Word will give us hope in the midst of that struggle with pride. So like I said, this is our last week in Proverbs. Almost three full months that we've spent looking at this book of wisdom. And as we wrap it up, we'll look at this one last obstacle, where it comes from, where it leads to, and then we will see what hope we have in the midst of it. So first, where does pride come from? Before we can answer that, I think we have to have a good definition of what we mean by pride. In the Bible, when someone is proud, it means that they have too high a view of themselves. Like I said, this word has this idea of someone who tries to elevate themselves, believes that they are somehow higher up looking down on others. All throughout the Old Testament, kings in the Bible are admonished for getting drunk with their own power and becoming proud. Having been given some measure of authority, these kings then believe themselves to actually be greater and better and higher than everyone else. They fall into the sin of pride. A prime example of this is Nebuchadnezzar, a king of Babylon who reigned over a massive, powerful empire. In the book of Daniel, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is given a measure of power and earthly glory that even God allows him to have that power and authority but instead of recognizing that his power came from God Nebuchadnezzar starts to believe that he earned it for himself that's because of how great he was that he now had the position of authority he so much enjoyed so he boasted as if this glory was something he had attained for himself for that he was humbled by God But pride isn't just limited to those who have a great deal of power or possessions. In the first century church of Rome, some Christians believed themselves to have a superior spiritual spiritual heritage to some of the other believers in their church. And Paul warned those Christians that they were estimating their own merit and their own spiritual well-being too highly... And were in grave danger of losing themselves in their own pride. Of reveling in their standing before God as if it was something they had earned rather than a gift freely bestowed. So whether you're the king of Babylon or just someone sitting in a pew at a church. You are at risk of believing in your own hype. and Buying into pride that you are better than you think you are. That you ought to be esteemed above others. The sin of pride, however, is not just esteeming yourself above others. Ultimately, the sin of pride is that the proud person thinks themselves higher than God Himself. The proud person thinks that their understanding is more complete than God's, that their knowledge of how to conduct their life is superior to what He has revealed in His Word. We see that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, though they said they just wanted to be equal with God as the serpent tempted them, they also then believed they had a better understanding of what would happen if they ate from a forbidden tree than God had. God had told them exactly what would happen if they ate from a particular tree in the garden, but in their pride, they Assumed they had a better understanding of what would actually happen, of what the real consequences would be. So ultimately, pride is a sin of thinking of yourself higher than others, but also higher than God Himself, where you draw into questions, that question the things that God has said and ask, well, is that really true? Because I think I actually know a little bit better than God does. And so if God has forbidden something, I'm going to re-examine that and see if maybe I really can still go do that because maybe it's not as bad as God thinks it is. Or if God commends me towards a certain course of action, maybe I have to wait and see if that's really what I should do. I have to investigate and check out the facts. I can't just take God at his word. Whenever we do that in our lives, in any small way or any large way, what we're doing is saying, God can't be trusted but luckily i've got myself and my own intuition to figure out what i really should be doing so that's a definition of pride of elevating ourselves and our own thinking above others and above god himself but now the question where did it come from pride entered the world as a result of sin of willful rebellion against god the creator what we see in the garden of eden with adam and eve is sin entering into this world and corrupting Adam and Eve and all of their children that would come after them. When God first made the world, he decreed it good over and over and over. It was good. And that good doesn't just mean average. When God says that something was good as he created, it doesn't mean, well, it's good, but it's not great. Rather, when God declared his created world good... He meant that it was as it should be. It was ordered rightly. Everything was pleasing. Everything was perfect. But when sin entered the world, it destroyed that balance, and the perfection of the world was lost. Adam and Eve willfully entered into sin and disobedience against God, also ensuring that all of their children And their children's children, all the way down to us, would be sinners as well. So because of sin's corrupting effect, our hearts are no longer ordered in the right, good way as when God first made this world. In a perfect world, the human heart worships God alone as the perfect king above all other things. In a sinful world, the human heart now worships literally anything else that it can try to put on the throne in its heart. It might be just straight up worshiping ourselves or worshiping something else we can find. But in a sinful world, the human heart will try to worship anything but the one true God who is the one person that ought to be worshiped. Paul illustrates this progression clearly in the beginning of Romans. And we heard these verses just a few minutes ago when Lester came up and prayed. But I'll read them for us again. You don't have to flip there. I'll just read these for us. But in Romans 1, starting in verse 20, Paul writes this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Paul's laying out here is the natural progression that sin takes in the hearts of you and I. And so just notice what happens here. First, we see that sinful humans still have a general knowledge of God's existence. Just look out at the stars on a dark night and try to just comprehend the vastness of the universe. Or spend time just staring at your own hand, something close to you. And as you stare at it, just ponder the complexity of the human body and everything that's working together so you can move your fingers and open and close your fist. Whether you look at the largest scale of our universe or down to the smallest scale of our universe, you will find a vastness but also an order that screams out that it was created by an all-powerful maker. And Paul says, even sinful humans can hear that witness of creation, that we all have at least a general knowledge of God's existence. But what happens in the second step of the progression that sinners choose to ignore this reality? Though God has made himself known generally throughout all of the universe and even specifically in the scriptures, sinful humans close our eyes and plug our ears and just try to ignore that completely. So it leaves us without excuse. No one can say, I I didn't know that there was a creator. Paul would say, just open your eyes and look out at the world. Look at the universe. But then, even for us, it's worse because we have God's very word to read. And still, often in our sinfulness, we choose to close our eyes and plug our ears so that we just don't have to pay attention. What happens in the third step then of the progression is that sinners suppressing this reality of God become foolish in their thinking. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So those who choose to ignore the Lord will live in futility and foolishness. Hearts become darkened and their minds clouded. So that then we try to invent our own systems of wisdom and understanding all while trying to ignore the most basic reality of the universe that there is a God who has made and ordered this entire world. And then as a final step in this progression, sinners now left up to our own futile thinking design and create our own objects of worship. This is the final step that we now choose what we believe should be worshiped and try to go and worship that thing. This is the result of a prideful person that has decided, I know better than God how to spend my time and expend my energy on this world. So it started out, I had knowledge of God, but I chose to ignore it. And in ignoring it, my understanding became futile. And in that futility, I now design up whatever I can imagine to worship because I think that I have figured out life. Today, our sinful pride probably doesn't lead us to worship a lot of birds or animals or creeping things, like Paul mentions in Romans 1. But the principle is still in operation. The human heart that has decided to ignore God arrogantly decides what to worship now instead. Instead of worshiping the immortal, all-powerful God, we give all of our attention to our comfort and leisure, or our resume, or our reputation, or the list goes on and on of things that we will give ourselves, our time, and all of our energy to in the absence of worshiping God. I said earlier that all of us, to one extent or another, are prideful. That's because in our sinful condition, we all assume we know better than God what we ought to worship and how we ought to live. So pride is common to everyone that's been born on this earth ever since Adam and Eve. Because like Adam and Eve, we were born sinners and in our sin have tried to suppress God and the things he said. Pride comes from our sinful nature, but where does it lead? This is our second question to ask. We first asked, where does pride come from? Now we need to ask, well, where does it lead? There are three places that it will lead us if we continue walking in its path. The first place that pride will lead us is away from God. Our pride exists in direct competition with God. He's the creator who's above all things. He deserves worship more than anyone else. But our pride, we try to remove God and put ourselves in his place. James admonished Christians who try to continue to live in their worldliness and pride. James 4, I'll, I'll read this for us. James 4, starting in verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James tells his reader that God yearns jealously. God's jealousy is not a petty disappointment that he's been snubbed by someone who's not worshiping him. God's jealousy is a rightly placed desire that all would worship him because he alone is worthy of our adoration and our praise. He alone created all things and sits in authority above all things. So when God is jealous, he is jealous for what is rightfully his. We were created to worship him, and when we fail to do that, it has disastrous effects for us and those around us. God is jealous to receive the honor he is rightly due. But when we decide to walk in our own way, in our own prideful understanding, we attempt to give honor to ourselves rather than God. In so doing, we now stand in direct opposition with him because he deserves all honor. So any honor we try to claim for ourselves is an attempt to steal it away from God. So pride will first lead us away from God himself. The prideful person can't walk towards God, but only away. The second place that pride leads us is away from others. Pride not only creates competition with God, it creates competition with the people around us, with our friends, our family. C.S. Lewis writes this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Lewis's writing falls right in line with what scripture has revealed. Pride is this estimation that somehow I've risen above somebody else. And pride can look different in different people. It's not always just sort of the stereotypical image of the super proud, arrogant, aloof person. But in every case, pride will have the effect of driving us away from one another and causing relationships with each other to break down. Some people are proud about the friends they have, the people that they can count as their acquaintances. That will have the effect of steering them away from anyone that they evaluate as lesser or maybe a few notches below them socially some people are proud about being experts in a subject sometimes they've dedicated years of their life to learn something and learn it well and they've become proud in their own standing in a field so they will become upset by anyone who would question what they say or even worse who might know more about that thing than they do So their pride will drive them away from anyone who disagrees. Some people are proud of their self-sufficiency, kind of the ability to just hold it all together, to get everything they need, that in hard times or good times, they're able to just keep marching on. But in their pride, when that person is hurting or in need, they will do everything possible to hide that, to keep up appearances, and to keep people at a distance so they don't see the real mess and turmoil that's going on in their life because they have an image to keep. Some people are proud of their accomplishments. Whether in their personal life, or in a professional life, they're proud of the things they're able to put down on a resume of what they've done. So when others have success instead of celebrating They only start to feel a sense of jealousy and competition that they haven't accomplished quite as much. I could go on and on. Pride can look so different from person to person. There's different areas of our life, different areas of our personality that we, in our own estimation, have deemed to be better than others. But however it crops up in your life, pride will have the effect of putting Tension and distance between you and the people around you. Between you and the people that you love. Pride will lead us away from others and continue to isolate us. Because if people get too close, if they get to know us too well, then they might see that we're not all that we try to say we are. The last place that pride will lead us is death. The author of Proverbs told us in this passage we read earlier, wherever pride is, destruction will follow. Sometimes that proverb has a fairly immediate payoff. Someone says or does something arrogant and then almost instantly is embarrassed. And all the onlookers can sort of nod the head and say, well, pride comes before the fall. But sometimes the proud seem to endure. And it doesn't ever look like there's a big downfall anywhere in sight. And they might go their entire life without seeming to suffer any setbacks whatsoever. But ultimately, as James reminded us, God does oppose the proud. If you spend your life placing yourself above everyone else and thinking higher of yourself than anyone around you or even God himself then eventually there will come a day of judgment. That even if we can get by a sort of an impressive, accomplished person in this life, this life has a time limit. And after that, we have all of eternity before us. And for any who just live their life in their own arrogant understanding, the scriptures say, God stands opposed to you. And ultimately, he is the judge. What about those who are trusting in Christ? If you've repented from your sin and turned to Jesus as your Savior, will pride now become some sort of unforgivable sin that leads to your destruction? The short answer is no. Christ's atonement is sufficient to cover the sin of pride in your life. But that answer comes with some cautions. First, if your life is marked by a sort of unchecked pride or arrogance, it might be that you've never truly repented in the first place. You might call yourself a Christian and claim that for yourself, but your life bears no fruit as a witness to that. A healthy Christian faith will continually put sin to death through the power of the Holy Spirit. So where that is absent, where that sort of growth in your faith is absent, you should at least be very cautious and ask yourself, am I truly leaning on God or am I leaning on my own understanding? So if your life is marked by an unchecked arrogance or a pride, you might be able to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But is that actually true and reflect what you believe in your heart? A second caution is this. For the Christian who truly is leaning on Christ as their Savior, pride like any other sin can still weigh you down in a quagmire where you spin the wheels, you refuse to put sin to death, and you will spend your life wasting the time and the talent that God has given you to be a witness for him. And to build his kingdom. Paul warns the Christians in Corinth. Saying that you can have two Christians. Who are both truly trusting in Christ. But one who spends their life. Doing the work that God has set aside for them. And one who wastes their life. Doing their own thing. And ultimately both Christians will be saved. But one will kind of smell like smoke. Because of how Closely, they escaped the fire. So even for the one who follows Christ, we must be cautious of wherever sin is and immediately ask God's spirit to root that out in us and put it to death. Because God has prepared for us works that we get to do to partner with him. But if we just want to stick to our own understanding in various areas of life, we won't get to partner with him in those works. So that's where pride leads us. It leads us away from God. It leads us away from others. And ultimately, it can lead us to death. So how do we combat pride in our life? If we are tempted to be proud because of an inherited sin nature... And if our pride will drive us away from God and others and take us to destruction, how do we escape it? How do we, as Proverbs would say, learn to fear the Lord so that we might walk in his wisdom? And the answer is beautifully simple. Embrace the gospel. The good news that Jesus paid for your sin and now freely offers you new life and a renewed spirit. The gospel frees us up to live in humility and enables us to put pride to death in our lives. When we trust Christ and follow Him, we will be transformed into His image. And Jesus is the perfect example of humble living. Has anyone ever lived out Proverbs 16:19 more perfectly than Jesus? It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is Jesus' self-description of his character? He says, I'm gentle and lowly. No one has ever walked this earth... Who deserved more praise than Jesus? No one has ever been on this planet who had more power or authority than Jesus, but he comes to earth and says, I'm gentle and lowly. He could have dined with kings and emperors and dazzled them with all sorts of signs and miracles, but instead he dined with the lowly, the sinner, the tax collector, the poor. He had every rightful claim to be given glory and adoration, but set that aside so he could be with his people. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be good enough. You can admit weakness. You can admit failure and stumbling. You can be gentle and lowly of heart like your Savior. If Jesus, who had every right to be proud on this earth, came and said, I am gentle and lowly, then we are freed up to be gentle and lowly like he is. Jesus came for the broken and the sinners, not the oppressive and accomplished. So we can lay down our pride. We can humbly approach our Savior knowing that he welcomes us in. We don't have to be good enough We don't have to be impressive enough. We just have to come and confess our weakness to him. If we continue on trusting in our own ability, if we continue on in our pride thinking that we have utmost strength and fortitude, then we will never run to God with our weakness and experience the grace and mercy that he pours out. Proverbs 22.4 says the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. For the one who would be humble, come before God and admit their sinfulness and their brokenness. Christ welcomes them in and gives them an inheritance of riches and honor and life. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the book of Proverbs that you have given us, written down your wisdom that we might learn and understand how we ought to live. I ask that we would be humble to admit our own shortcoming, that we could learn to walk and follow you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.